All right, Matthew chapter four. If I can ask to, for you to turn in your Bibles. We're gonna be in Matthew chapter four and Matthew chapter six this morning. We're gonna be looking at uh, two passages of scripture. As I said, Matthew chapter four and, sorry, Mark. Sheetal has been listening to the, last, to the last three weeks. We're in a series in Mark. Uh, so Mark chapter four, my bad, sorry. Mark chapter four. I was saying Matthew and turning to, to Mark in my Bible. Uh, we're gonna be looking at two passages of scripture today that uh, recount the times when the disciples went through storms. And uh, uh, just to kind of give you a forewarning, if you've been around at Anthem for a while, you know typically how I uh, preach, how I present a message. It's normally with a, a nice introduction and neatly packaged kind of three to four points, all, start, uh, all starting with the same letter so it can be memorable and a, and a nice conclusion to kind of tie it all up together. And today's not gonna be that kind of a sermon. What we're gonna do today is we're gonna look at two passages in Mark chapter four and Mark chapter six and that deal with the disciples encountering storms. And we're gonna walk our way through the passage together. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry, the, the text is gonna come up on the screen behind me. And we're gonna be kind of doing that so that firstly we can discover what the text is saying so that we can learn what the text secondly is saying to us. But as we do that, I, I wanna just be very upfront and say that the text and today's sermon is probably gonna provoke some, some very specific questions for each of you. Questions that I wanna be honest and say, I don't think I'm gonna be able to answer. I, I don't know the reason why we go through the storms that we go through, that sometimes leave us feeling lost or lonely or confused or, or overwhelmed, or perhaps for some feeling like you can barely hang on. I don't know why we go through the kinds of storms that we do when it feels like we're in a boat and we are rowing on the oars, but we are absolute, we're getting absolutely nowhere. And perhaps that's been the experience for some of you over the past few months. Perhaps for others, you felt like you're getting nowhere over the past few years. I, I don't know why sometimes we go through storms and it feels like one storm after the next, after the next, and we're taking on water and we don't quite know what to do. And for those of us here who follow Jesus, perhaps the biggest question that we have is why sometimes when we go through storms, it feels like, and I wanna emphasize the word feels like, when we're going through those storms, Jesus appears to be distant or indifferent or uninterested or disinterested in what we are going through. I don't have to stand here and tell you uh, experiences and storms that I've gone through, past and present, to convince you that this is something that we can all relate to, because I know each and every one of us here at some point in our lives have gone through storms, and these kinds of questions have come up. But there are certain questions that this sermon will answer. There are truths that this sermon will drive home that I think if we can grab hold of these truths, if we can see them and grab hold of them and take ownership of them for ourselves, I believe the truths that we're gonna be looking at today out of Mark chapter four and Mark chapter six will drown out and overwhelm some of those unanswered questions. We're gonna be learning truths about the fact that Jesus alone has the authority to still storms 
and the ability to walk on the waves of anything that you and I go through. We're gonna learn truths about the fact that Jesus sees us in every storm. I love that word that Gary brought, that Jesus sees us in every storm. He sees us because he is with us. And because he sees us and he is with us, he either stills the storm or he gives us the strength to walk through the storm. And the truth above all, the truth that shouts loudest above all truths, the truth, if there is one truth that you take home today, it's this truth. Not only does Jesus see us, but in every storm, we have the opportunity to see him. Jesus says in Mark chapter six, he says to his disciples, as they are in the middle of the lake, in the middle of a storm, in the middle of the night, can anyone relate? Jesus says to them, take courage. It is I, do not be afraid. As Sheetal rightly pointed out, we are in a series through the book of Mark, not the book of Matthew. And the series that we are walking through is a series that we've entitled, Step Into God's Story. It's an invitation for each and every one of us to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus means to be with him and to become like him so that we can participate in doing the things that he is doing. And what Jesus is doing, and what Jesus has always been doing, is advancing the kingdom of God, allowing us and through us for others to experience the tangible reality of the kingdom of God. He wants us, as we follow him, to help others, to, well, firstly for us to experience it, but to help others know the reality of God's power and his grace and his light and his love and his life. And in the first three chapters of Mark's gospel, Jesus has shown us what the kingdom of God is like. He's shown us that the kingdom of God looks like freedom. He's shown us that the kingdom of God looks like healing and closeness with God and forgiveness and acceptance and calling and community. But now in Mark chapter four, what Jesus does with his disciples is he tells them about the kingdom of God. We looked at this a few weeks ago, but he starts off in Mark chapter four and he says, the kingdom of God is like a farmer who goes out to sow seed. And that seed that the farmer sows, the, the seed is the, is the word of the kingdom, the seed is the work of God's kingdom, sometimes falls on paths that are hard sometimes falls in soil that is rocky and so it can't take root. Sometimes the word of God, the work of the kingdom of God, falls amongst thorns and so it doesn't produce fruit. Later on in Mark chapter four, he says that sometimes the work of God's kingdom in someone's heart or within a community can be seen so small so inconsequential that it is like a, a mustard seed, so small, the smallest of all seeds being planted in the largest of gardens. But the Bible teaches us that God will not be mocked. 
Because what is sown in faith, what is sown faithfully will ultimately produce fruit. In Isaiah chapter 55, God says this about his word. My word that goes out from my mouth will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And so those seeds that are faithfully sown in good soil will ultimately, Jesus tells us in the parable of the sower, produce fruit. Not just a harvest, but a supernatural harvest. 30, 60, 100 fold. That seed, that mustard seed that appears to be so small, so inconsequential, that is planted in someone's heart, that is planted within a community, will ultimately grow to be the largest of all trees. And Jesus also tells us about the parable of the growing seed, to to reinforce, to drive home the power of God's word. Let's look at it together, verse 26. Mark chapter four, verse 26. He also said this, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how all by itself, all by itself. The soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Before we get into the text about the storm, these parables prompt us, I think, to ask some questions. And I'm gonna ask three questions of us. Firstly, will we truly believe the word of God is a seed that carries the power to bear fruit all by itself? Will we trust Jesus and his word to do the work even though we don't know how? Or will we worry about things like wind and waves and unexpected storms more than we trust in God's word? Because those are the exact questions that we're about to be asked of the disciples. Let's pick up the story in Mark chapter four, verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. That was Jesus's word to the disciples. Let me ask you, what has God said to you? Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, took Jesus along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him, a furious Squall. Some translations say a fierce storm. It's the Greek word megas, where we get the English word mega. Megabytes, megawatts, megachurch, megatron. Megastorm is essentially what is being said here. A megastorm came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Earlier on in, in, the, in, in Mark chapter four, the, the, the lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee was calm enough for Jesus to use one of the boats as a pulpit. He was standing and he was preaching to the crowds that had gathered on the shore. But now, unexpectedly, suddenly, out of nowhere, can we relate? The disciples were found themselves in the midst of a fierce storm. The Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long and about eight miles wide. So think 
Montrose Harbor to the Science Museum, think Navy Pier to Garfield Park, is roughly the dimensions of the Sea of Galilee, quite small. What's interesting, it is the lowest of all the lakes, apparently, in, in the world. It's 700 feet below sea level. But surrounding the Sea of Galilee are these kind of towering mountains. And so there, there is often temperature changes and pressure changes which cause these violent and unexpected storms to hit the lake. But in this storm, look at verse 38. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. What, what, what was Jesus doing? Jesus was living out. Jesus was demonstrating the parable of the growing seed that we just read a few moments ago. Jesus was trusting in his Father. He was trusting that, that God's plan and God's promise will come to pass, that Jesus' life will end on the hill in, in Calvary and not at the bottom of Lake Galilee. He was putting his preaching from verse 27 into practice. Look at verse 27 quickly with me. Let's re read this again. Night and day, whether he, whether the farmer, or in this case, whether Jesus sleeps or gets up, whether he rests or whether he's frantic, the seed, the word, the promise of God sprouts and grows though he does not know how. Jesus is trusting in the word of God. But look at the disciples. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, to be clear, I've asked some similar questions like this before. I've asked questions like this before all too often. But I wanna put it to you, this is probably one of the most ridiculous questions ever to be asked. Teacher, Jesus, don't you care if we drown? Some translations say, don't you care if we perish? It's the exact same Greek word, drown, perish, the exact same Greek word that is found in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Essentially what the disciples are saying, Jesus, we, we know or we thought we knew that you were the one sent from heaven to come to earth to save those who are perishing and we are doing exactly that. We are perishing and you don't seem to care. Friends, when we focus on the storms, not only do we lose sight of the promise of God, but we start to confuse the one who made the promise. How are you responding to God's word, to God's promise at the moment? Are you like Jesus, perhaps sleeping, resting, trusting in the promise of the Father? Or are you like the disciples, frantic, feeling out of control, feeling like Jesus is not gonna be faithful to his word? I actually did this exercise this week. I took out my journal. And I wrote down a list of all the promises that I could think of that God has given me, all the prayers that I've been praying recently, standing on God's word to trust for breakthrough. I wrote them all down and I went through each one and I closed my eyes and I tried to picture how was I responding? Was I asleep in the boat despite the storm like Jesus? Or was I frantic like the disciples? You can do this right now. In fact, let me ask you, think right now of a, of a promise that God has given you, of a word that God has spoken into your life. Think of that right now and then take a moment, real quick. 
Are you like Jesus, asleep, despite the storm, trusting in the Father, or are you frantic, trying to make things happen in your own strength? For some reason, I kept looking at this side about Jesus being restful and this side being frantic. That's not a, this side being restful just as much as potentially that side being frantic. Verse 39, Jesus got up. He rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. Can I just say for a minute, I have no claim to understand fully how, how storms work in the grand scheme of things, but it's interesting that we as a culture, as a society, tend to blame God for natural disasters. And if you don't believe me, just open up your insurance policy and look at the section Acts of God. As a culture, we, we, we point our finger at God, yet what does Jesus default to? Jesus defaults to rebuking the storm using very similar language to the way he rebuked the demon in Mark chapter one. And the result was complete calm. Same Greek word as the word megas, uh, mega storm, mega calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Jesus is saying, friends, after all that we've been through, after all the miracles, and after all the healing, and after, uh, uh, after all the deliverances, and I've just taken time to teach you about the power of God's word, do you still fear? Do you still have no faith? Why won't you trust me? And I think this is perhaps a good time to circle back real quick to those questions I asked a little earlier. Will we believe that the word of God is a seed which carries power to bear fruit all by itself? Will we trust Jesus and his word to do its work even though we don't know how? Or will we worry about things like wind and waves and unexpected storms more than we trust God's word? Verse 41, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves Obey him. Can I just grab some water, please, real quick? Thank you. Nothing like glugging water while you have a microphone two inches from your mouth. <laughs> Forgive me for that. Let's fast forward to Mark chapter six. Don't worry. In the coming weeks, we're gonna circle back on some of the texts in Mark chapter five. Sheetal is gonna pick up on some of the things in Mark chapter five, and I'm gonna preach on some of the texts in Mark chapter six, but I want us to turn to Mark chapter six, verse 45, the second of the storm accounts that the disciples went through. Picking up in verse 45, immediately. So Jesus, for just to give some context, has fed what commentators say are about 20,000 people with nothing more than five fish and two loaves, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Well, we are hardly out of the blocks in the second text. And already there's a word or a phrase that feels a little troubling. Jesus made his disciples. We know what's coming, don't we? I mean, if you're not sure, I'll, I'll spoil the story. Another storm is on the way. 
And it says there, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and to go over to Bethsaida. Uh, When I first read this, I was like, okay, maybe that's a little heavy-handed translation. Let me dig a little deeper and probably it'll be a little lighter. And unfortunately, no. It just drives home the point that Jesus insisted or Jesus compelled his disciples to get into the boat and to go to Bethsaida knowing that a storm was on the way. How do we make sense of this? Let me tell you about two incidences of storms that I've been in. I've had some crazy encounters with some storms, particularly back in South Africa. When I was in high school, I played on the school golf team and we were on a a golf tour playing in this very important golf tournament in South Africa. We woke up early in, in that morning and one of the friends that was on the golf tour with me was actually from that particular area. It was raining cats and dogs. It was pouring with rain. And I've chosen that phrase in particular, knowing that it's a British phrase, raining cats and dogs, because I want to describe just how hard the rain was. It wasn't raining cats and it wasn't raining dogs. It was raining cats and dogs. I did a little research. This has got nothing to do with my sermon. But the the phrase raining cats and dogs is a medieval phrase where because domestic animals slept on thatched roofs and when it poured so badly, the thatched roofs would give way and cats and dogs would literally fall down. So back to the golf tournament. It was raining cats and dogs. It was pouring that morning. And the friend of mine said to me, Steve, don't worry. It doesn't rain that badly this time of year in this area. Well, unfortunately, unbeknown to myself and this friend, that was day one of a seven-day hurricane that hit South Africa and caused flooding like had never been seen before for 100 years. That was my first encounter with a crazy storm. Fast forward a couple years later, again, I was playing golf, and I've started to realize storms in golf and me don't particularly go very well. We were playing in Johannesburg, which is known for its summer afternoon thunderstorms. And I was walking, playing with a a group of of folks in in a golf tournament, and the siren went off to tell us we needed to get off the golf course. A thunderstorm, a lightning storm was on the way. Now, we were in a very remote part of the golf course, and being six foot, five and a half, I was a little concerned. You'd think I would worry about that, but foolishly, I took out my steel-shafted umbrella because it was raining cats, not as badly as cats and dogs, but it was, it was raining, and we had to get out off the golf course, and I, we saw a, a, a house across the way. We decided to walk to it. Friends, this is not a word of a lie. As I'm walking, six foot five and a half of me with a steel shafted umbrella, I was the tallest thing for miles around. I suddenly had the sense that a lightning bolt was about to strike. And I looked to my right as I felt, the sense I had was look to your right, a lightning bolt is about to strike. I kid you not, out of the heavens came this bolt of lightning and struck six feet to my right. Not me six feet to my right. I'm convinced to this day that I I was saved from my stupidity by the grace of God. I was saved from my stupidity by the grace of God. I say all of that to say the storms we face in the natural are varied and the storms in life that we face are just as varied. I don't wanna oversimplify this, but, but, but I think storms of life come at us in, in three different ways. Firstly, there are storms that come because the devil is trying to oppose the work that Jesus is doing in our lives. 
When you and I say yes to Jesus, sometimes we're surprised when we suddenly face opposition. Friends, we shouldn't be. The devil is trying to do all he can to oppose our yes to Jesus' will. Sometimes, if I have to be honest, storms come at us because of our weakness, foolishness, sin in our lives, poor decisions in the context of how we are trying to follow the will of God. And sometimes, The storms come at at us because of delays by God for us to fulfill his purpose. God does not cause the storm, but the storms occur because we struggle with God's timing. Hebrews 6 tells us that by faith and patience, we inherit the promise of God. Friends, I think often we can handle the faith part, but we struggle a little with the patience part. No matter the source of the storm, can I be very clear? God does not cause them. But God uses them to achieve his his purpose. His purpose of, his process of shaping us into the image of his son Jesus. But never in a way that is beyond what we can handle. Don't turn there, but listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No test, no storm that comes your way, no matter its source, is beyond the course of what others have had to face. All you need to remember is that God will never let you down. He'll never let you be pushed past your limits. He'll always be there to help you come through it. Friends, listen to this. God never tests us to the point of failure. He tests us to the point of faith. And what I mean by that, he tests us to the point where eventually we lay down our own efforts and we say, Jesus, by faith, would you help me in the midst of this difficulty? And he's doing that because he is shaping and transforming ordinary people like you and me so that in him we can do extraordinary things. Picking up again in verse 46, after leaving them, He went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining on the oars because the wind was against them. They were in the middle of the lake, in the middle of a storm, in the middle of the night. But shortly before dawn, I love that phrase, How many of you have seen that darkness before dawn and then suddenly you start to see light beginning to invade the darkness? I want you to picture that. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. Now, now, there's another troubling verse, which we need to just pause and, and read again. Shortly before dawn, He went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. The fishermen, the disciples that were in the boat, were men who were entrenched in their understanding of the Old Testament. And they knew, first off, they knew that only God and God alone was able to walk on water. There are a number of verses throughout the Psalms and one in in Job chapter nine, which drives this home. He alone, speaking of God, stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Secondly, 
they were very comfortable with this phrase, pass by. Don't turn there, but in Exodus chapter 33, Moses is having this conversation with God. And essentially what Moses says to God is this. Uh, He says, God, would you reveal yourself? Would you show me your glory? And this is how God responds. The Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass by in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I have compassion on whom I will have compassion, but you will not see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place nearby where you may stand on a rock when my glory when my, the revelation of who I am passes by, I will put you in the cleft of a rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. My face must not be seen. And again, in Exodus chapter 34, when God does all of this, he says, as he passed by in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, and he begins to reveal himself. The point I'm making is that the phrase pass by is how God revealed himself to Moses. And so friends, Jesus walking on water and passing by the disciples, Jesus wasn't trying to sneak past so the disciples wouldn't see him. He intended to be seen. He intended to reveal himself in the most marvelous and glorious way just as he revealed himself to Moses as the one true God, the great majestic creator of the heavens and the earth. Friends, Jesus could very easily have taken the disciples and got them to join him up on a mountain to reveal himself. And that's exactly what happens in Mark chapter nine. We're gonna get there in a few weeks. Jesus takes his disciples up onto a mountain and reveals his glory to them. There are moments when Jesus reveals himself to us on those mountaintop experiences, a worship conference, a time when a prophetic word brings absolute clarity to a situation, when we get away alone to be with God. But there is something about God's revelation about himself that can only be learned in a crisis. There's something about God's revelation of himself to us that can only be learned in sickness or relationship breakup or financial collapse or whatever storm you or I are currently facing. And so my encouragement to you, if you are currently in a storm right now, my exhortation is open your eyes because God wants to reveal himself to you. But when they saw him, verse 49, walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost and they cried out because, all, because they all saw him and they were terrified. And immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down and they were completely amazed for they had not understood the loaves, they had not understood about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. So easy for us to judge the disciples. But friends, we are those disciples. How often have we seen God come through for us? 
How often have we seen his miraculous power? How often have we seen him be faithfulness, but yet we're still suspicious sometimes of his intent and sometimes we doubt his faithfulness. But God, Jesus, is so gracious to us in our weakness. He doesn't, he doesn't rebuke us. What does he say to us? Take courage. Take courage. It is I. We don't have time to look at this, but it is I. I am is another reference to Exodus chapter three where God reveals himself to Moses. Essentially what Jesus is saying is the same way God revealed himself to Moses, I am revealing myself to you. I am means I am the God who rescues and redeems every situation. I am the God who works in history into every circumstance and into every situation. That's why he says, don't be afraid. And when they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. Where were they going? Where were the disciples heading? They were heading to Bethsaida. And where did they land? In Gennesaret. They got blown off course. Does that sound familiar? God, I I thought I was doing the right thing by following you in this direction, and I'm ending up here. But look at what happens. Verse 54. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplace. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 28 in in action. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know, do we? Do we? I say that to myself as well. And we know that in all things, in all things, in all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his hope and purpose. I don't wanna get down a theological bunny trail and I don't have time to get there, but sometimes, friends, and I've been guilty of this at times, we try to place our hope and confidence in this kind of like, oh, it must be God's will. This blanket statement that we say, we attach to all things, oh, it must be God's will. And I understand, friends, that God is sovereign. But I wanna say, I believe with absolute certainty in terms of my conviction that there are some things that are not God's will that we go through. Our hope is not in the fact that it is God's will. Our hope is in the fact that no matter what storm we go through, no matter what crisis we find ourselves in, we serve Jesus who alone has the authority to still that storm and who alone has the ability to walk on the waves of no matter what we face. That's where our hope lies. So let's bring this into land. What can we learn from all of this? Firstly, I wanna say, if you were to remove all the teaching that is found in the Gospels about Jesus being the Son of God, if you were just left with the stories, if you were just left with the accounts of the things Jesus did, there is endless evidence to point to the fact that Jesus is God. And I say that to say, friends, if you want to know what God looks like, Look at Jesus. When you read the Gospels, when you read the Scriptures, and I wanna say, please, can we be a people who find ourselves in the Word of God? And when we read the Gospels, and when we read the Scriptures, I wanna encourage us, let's ask two questions. Jesus, would you show yourself to me? 
And Jesus, secondly, would you show me how to follow you? But Mark chapter four and Mark chapter six are about us too. We're the ones terrified in the boat. We're the ones straining on the oars and it feels like we are getting nowhere. We're the ones who are being blown off course. We're the ones who are caught in the middle of the lake, in the middle of a storm, in the middle of the night and we don't know what to do. Three things, hopefully, that we've learned this morning. Firstly, Jesus sees us in the storm. He sees us because he is always praying for us. I don't know if you noticed this. You can go back and have a look, but in Mark chapter six, Jesus comes to the disciples before they cry out to him. I'm gonna say that again. Jesus comes to his disciples before they begin crying out to him. He sees them because he's praying for them. And according to Romans chapter eight, Jesus never stops praying for us. Secondly, the second thing that we can learn is Jesus will always do one of two things. He will either save us from the storm or will he, he will strengthen us and walk with us through the storm. It's not for me to say which one he's gonna do. That requires us to lean into Jesus and to ask him for his will. Jesus, what do you wanna do? But we can be assured, friends, he will either rebuke that storm and silence it, or he will strengthen us and walk with us through that storm. And then thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, I hope that we've learned that in every storm, we see him. I love this picture of Jesus coming down from the mountain, walking off the mountain, and then walking on water to get to his disciples. Nothing gets in Jesus' way to come and rescue his disciples. Nothing stands in the way of Jesus coming to rescue us in the midst of the storm. He walks off the mountain, he walks on the water so that he can reveal God to his disciples. And then he says, take courage. I hope these texts have encouraged you if you're in the middle of a storm. But can I say, friends, this word, take courage, is essential for every single one of us who follow Jesus. It takes courage to follow Jesus. And where do we find that courage? In the very next thing that Jesus says, it is I. I am with you. I am with you in every storm, Jesus says. Friends, we just need to slow down and open our eyes and ask God to reveal himself to us in the midst of the storm. Take courage, it is I. God is not causing the storm. God is using the storm to reveal himself to us. And then he says, don't be afraid. That's not a suggestion, it's a command. I know fear is not always, we're not always able to control fear, but often we are. And if our eyes are on the God who walks on water, I think some of the fear that we let into our hearts will no longer be there. Can I get the worship team up if possible, Aiden? Verse 51, look at verse 51. Speaking of Jesus, then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down and they were completely amazed. In Matthew's translation of this particular text, it goes on to say, those in the boat worshiped him. Those in the boat worshiped him. And that's what we're gonna do this morning as we bring this this morning into land, bring the, as we bring 
uh, this message into end. We're gonna worship Jesus by breaking bread together.